0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? I am working right now on a couple things. One, I'm working on getting over COVID. I'm almost there. Uh, Not quite there, but I'm getting there. And the other thing I'm working on is an episode about a company called Sansui that is a or was rather a company that made audio equipment like amplifiers and receivers and stuff like that. But as I was doing it, I felt like I was retreading some ground on a uh, on a previous episode called How Speakers and Amplifiers Work. And I thought, why not have that episode play out? And then next week's Monday's episode will be about uh, Sansui, and I won't have to to cover quite as much of the same territory. Again, I can focus more on the company and its history, because y'all know me. Y'all know that if I start talking about a company that makes a certain kind of tech or a, a product that features certain tech, I'll end up talking about how the tech came about, what it does, all that kind of stuff. But I've already done that. So we're going to listen to this episode, How Speakers and Amplifiers Work, and I'll be back at the end to kind of tease next week's episode on this topic. But uh, sit back and enjoy this classic episode. Today, we are going to continue our episodes about how speakers work and how they are able to take electricity and make those sweet, sweet sounds for your ear holes. So let us jump back with a quick explanation of electromagnetism. So electricity and magnetism are very closely related, and you've likely done the simple physics exercise of creating a basic electromagnet. So you'll take something like an iron nail and you'll wrap insulated copper wire in a coil around the nail several times. The nail acts as a ferromagnetic core. The copper wire coil is a conductor. So connecting the ends of the copper wire to a battery will then allow current to flow through the wire. It'll flow from Uh, One end of the battery, through the wire, down into the other end of the battery. As it goes around this coil, the flow of electricity creates a magnetic field. The nail and coil will behave like a permanent magnet would. It's an electromagnet, but it'll behave like a permanent magnet with a north pole and a south pole. And if you brought it close to a permanent magnet, then the opposite... Poles would attract each other and the similar poles would repel each other. So if you brought the electromagnet's north pole next to a permanent magnet's north pole, it would push that other magnet away. And the poles will not change because the source of electricity is a battery and batteries provide direct current, which means the current is always going to flow in the same direction. It's never going to reverse. But If you hooked the same nail and coil up to a source of alternating current, things would be very different. With alternating current, the direction of the flow of electricity changes rapidly every second. And as the direction of electricity changes, it affects the magnetic field. With electricity flowing in one direction, the head of the nail might represent the north pole of the magnet. And when the electricity switches to the other direction, the head of the nail will become the south pole of the magnet. And vice versa. You have created a fluctuating magnetic field by running an alternating current through an electromagnet. And you can do some pretty cool stuff with a fluctuating magnetic field. For example, if you bring this apparatus close to a conductive material, you'll induce a change of voltage in that material even without making physical contact between the two. So if you do this with a stable magnetic field, all you'll do is see a very short spike, but then it stops because the magnetic field is not fluctuating. To induce electricity to flow by changing voltage in this other uh, conductor, the magnetic field has to be fluctuating, or the conductor has to be moving in and out of the magnetic field constantly. If you get two coils of copper wire, and you make sure the second copper wire has twice as many coils as the first one, you can create a transformer. So imagine you've got your first coil of wire. Let's say it's got 10 coils, 10 10 loops around its core. And you've got a second core with copper wire, but there are 20 loops around the second core. If you run a current through the first coil, it will induce current to flow through the second coil. Moreover, the voltage in the second coil will be higher than the voltage in the first coil because the second coil has twice as many coils as the first one. So the more times you loop a wire around a core, the greater the change of voltage is going to be between coil number one and coil number two. This particular version of a transformer would be called a step-up transformer because the secondary coil has more turns than the primary coil and steps up the voltage. If the opposite were true, if coil number one had 10 coils or 10 loops, and coil number two had five loops, then that would be a step down transformer. You would lower the voltage from primary to secondary. Transformers are what made alternating current the more viable solution to supplying electricity to homes and businesses back in the early days. Because transmitting electricity was all about efficiency. How could you efficiently get electricity from a power plant to where it needed to be? Well, if you used Alternating current, you could create transformers, and you could step up the voltage to very high levels, and that meant that you could transmit power across power lines much more efficiently. If you didn't do that, you had so much power loss that you would have to have lots of different power generators uh, throughout a region in order to supply all the power needs of your area, at least back in the old days of direct current, because it wasn't easy to step up the voltage. And again, high voltage makes it more efficient to transmit power across long distances. So in the early days, that's why AC went out over DC. These days, you could actually do things a little differently if you wanted to, and you could go with direct DC power if you really wanted to, but it would require a big overhaul of the infrastructure. But transformers made AC much more practical. Anyway, electromagnets are pretty awesome. Now with speakers, it's not so much about voltage and current as it is about making the diaphragm of the speaker move in precise ways. With speakers, the electrical current acts as both the carrier of information and the means to make the diaphragm move. So you start with a steady magnetic field inside the basket. You can create that steady magnetic field either with permanent magnets, like I mentioned before, or with electromagnets, but it remains the same no matter what. The north pole is always going to be the north pole. The south pole is always going to be the south pole inside the frame. That field does not change. The voice coil on the cone ends up receiving the variable current that came from the transmitter. That represents the recorded sound. Now remember, the way we record sound, as we typically will use something like a microphone and a microphone is essentially a speaker in reverse a microphone has a diaphragm in it that vibrates in the presence of sound waves those vibrations cause fluctuations inside an electric current you might vary the resistance of the circuit as we talked about with the uh the old uh, johann philipp rice approach and by varying those that electric resistance within the circuit you can fluctuate the electric current and then you could send that to a speaker. Though you would typically send it to an amplifier first, but we'll talk about that in a minute. The speaker then essentially reverses this process. It takes those fluctuations, sends them through an electromagnet, which will generate a variable magnetic field in response, which then makes the cone vibrate within the speaker and essentially do the opposite of what the microphone's diaphragm was doing and recreate the recorded sound. It's pretty cool and pretty elegant, really. So the electrical signal representing the recorded sound comes into the speaker, feeds into the voice coil, creates this fluctuating magnetic field. The field interacts with the permanent magnetic field inside the basket, either pulling the diaphragm forward in the basket and thus pushing air outward, or pulling the cone back toward the back of the basket and allowing air to come further in by creating that lower pressure. And these fluctuations happen at high frequencies. So the diaphragm is moving very rapidly inside the basket. It's not just pushing out, then pulling in. It's doing this hundreds or thousands of times per second. And it increases or decreases the air pressure as the cone pushes those air molecules or suddenly moves away, creating more space for them. And because sound is vibration, those air molecules carry the sound up to our ears, and then we rock out to AC-DC or whatever band you happen to like that isn't nearly as cool as ACDC. Now, keep in mind, what I have described is how a driver works. A speaker can, and often does, have more than one driver. And drivers come in different shapes, sizes, and purposes. So let's talk a little bit about what those are and what they do, and why you need to have different ones in the first place. Actually, that last question is the easiest answer right away. Remember... Again, sound is vibration, and low-frequency sounds have longer waveforms. The points of high and low pressure are further apart from each other than with high frequency sounds. If you could actually see the changes in air pressure due to sound, you would see that the low frequency sounds have these larger gaps between the high and low pressure points in the waves as they move out from the source of sound. So you need a cone diaphragm that can vibrate at a slower frequency and push air effectively at that speed. For that reason, you would typically go with a heavier, larger diaphragm, both because the wavelengths of sound are longer, if you're looking at the lower frequencies, and because making the material heavy gives it greater inertia. It takes more force to move the diaphragm, and it will move at a pace that will reproduce those low-frequency sounds you want. This type of speaker falls into the woofer or subwoofer categories. These are the speakers that create the bass sounds. A subwoofer tends to handle frequencies from around 20 hertz to 200 hertz. Think of a hertz as how long it takes a wave to pass through a given point in one second, or how many waves can pass through a given point in one second. All right, guys, we got some more to chat about with speakers. Before I jump into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Human hearing ranges from 20 hertz, which is 20 waves passing a given point in one second, to 20 kilohertz, or 20,000 waves passing through a point in one second. This really tells you more about the wavelength of the wave itself, and thus the frequency and then the pitch. Remember, the lower frequencies are the lower pitches. The higher frequencies are the higher pitches. And that's the frequency range for typical human hearing, 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. Now, I can tell you from my experience using a frequency sweeper, which will slowly go through a selection of frequencies that is all set at the same volume. So you get a standard volume across all of them that while i can technically hear stuff at 20 hertz it's not until you hit a frequency of about 50 hertz that it quote unquote sounds loud to me even though actual volume of the two tones remains the same so the amplitude is exactly the same but until you get to a frequency of about 50 hertz it just doesn't sound loud to me because my ears are not great at picking up those lower super low frequencies uh, also i should mention that while sound waves come in different frequencies sound itself travels at a speed that is dependent upon the medium through which it travels. So in other words, low-frequency sounds and high-frequency sounds travel at the same speed, through the same medium. Otherwise, you would have all the high-pitched sounds hitting your ears before the low-pitched ones, and conducting an orchestra would drive you crazy. The speed of sound is defined as the distance traveled by a sound wave in a certain unit of time. But hey, Jonathan, some of you might be saying, you were just talking about frequencies. If a high-frequency sound has 20,000 sound waves past a certain point in a second, and a low-frequency sound has 20 waves passing that same point in a the second, aren't they traveling at different speeds? No, they're not. This is easier to imagine if we take an analogy. So let's say you're standing on the side of the road. Every single vehicle going past you on this one-way road is traveling at a smooth 20 miles per hour or about 32 kilometers per hour, if you prefer. But they're all going that speed. Doesn't matter what kind of car it is, they're all going exactly 20 miles, or 32 kilometers per hour. Some of these vehicles are very tiny little smart cars. Some of them are super long extended buses, but they're all traveling at that same speed. So, even though they're going at the same speed, the buses take more time to pass you than the smart cars do, because the buses are longer. In the time it takes one super long bus to go by you, like the front passes you and you time it out, maybe four smart cars could go by you in that same amount of time, even though they're all going at 20 miles per hour. The same is true with sound waves. So we're not just talking about speed, but wavelength. So low frequency sounds and high frequency sounds are traveling at the same speed. It's just you can fit more of the waves in at that time than others because of the length. All right, back to the speed of sound. Now, I cannot give you a standard speed of sound for all occasions because the speed of sound depends on a lot of little things. For example, how much moisture is in the air or how cold is the air? Sound passes through the air and air is made up of gases and gases are made up of molecules. So as you heat up a gas, the molecules move apart from each other and they bounce around more. They're more able to move. As gas is cool, the molecules pack around together and they move around less, so they get more tightly packed. So a cold gas will transmit sound at a slightly slower speed than a warm gas will. So if the temperature outside is 68 degrees Fahrenheit or about 20 Celsius and the air is dry, sound will travel at 1,125 feet per second or 343 meters per second. And it doesn't matter what frequency sound waves you're working with, that's the speed they're going to travel at. And again, at different temperatures and through different media, sound will travel at a different speed. All right, now let's go back to the different types of drivers. After you handled the subwoofers and the woofers, uh, well, the woofers will still handle lower frequencies, but subwoofers are, are specialized woofers, largely because they will frequently be paired with special circuits and cabinets dedicated to creating those very, very low frequencies in an effort to produce a specific quality of sound. Such as, let's say you're watching an action film, and something done blowed up real good. You want to have that rumbly low bass for those moments, you know, the kind where... You can actually feel it because it's vibrating the chair and the air around you. And so it's it's that kind of rumble you can feel in your chest. Well, that frequently means you need a dedicated subwoofer unit that has its own power supply to generate the vibrations with enough force necessary to create that effect. So it's not just the speed, but how hard it's pushing. After subwoofers and woofers, you've got mid-range drivers, or mid-range speakers. And as the name suggests, these drivers are responsible for producing sounds in the middle-range frequencies of human hearing. A typical range might include 250 hertz to 2,000 hertz. You may have also heard the term squawker. When referencing mid-range speakers, they're made of lighter materials, and they can vibrate at higher frequencies than woofers and subwoofers, which is necessary to create those mid-range tones. And then you have tweeter speakers. These are made of the lightest weight material, and they vibrate the fastest in an effort to reproduce frequencies on the upper levels of human hearing, which tends to be between 2,000 and 20,000 hertz at least for consumer speakers. There are tweeters that can be made for special purposes that can generate sound frequencies well above the range of human hearing, some of them as high up as 100 kilohertz or 100,000 hertz. That's five times higher than the highest frequency the average human is capable of perceiving. So why would you want a tweeter that could go beyond the range of human hearing? Well, you might use it for scientific research purposes, like finding out what high, high, high pitches, the ultrasonic pitches might do to affect animal behavior. So you might be able to do that to learn how high a pitch a dog might be able to hear, for example, because dogs can hear at a different range than humans can. Or you might want to do experiments to see if those imperceptible frequencies have an effect on the sounds we can hear. So there are audiophiles who insist that frequencies beyond the human range of hearing can change the quality of the sounds that we do hear, and thus it's imperative to get a sound system and a type of media capable of reproducing sound frequencies at every level if you want a true reproduction of an original sound's quality. Uh, This falls into the realm of psychoacoustics, the study of sound perception. Because hearing involves processes in the brain, there is a subjective component to it that cannot be easily described through physics. We can talk all about the physics of sound waves and sound propagation, but ultimately, when it comes to the way we experience sound, we have to take gray matter into account. And that gets tricky, since our experience of perceiving sound can depend upon other things unrelated to the actual physics of the sound itself. For example, if I were to tell you That I have a sound system, and I've set it up, and it consists of the most expensive and most technologically advanced components. And the media that I was going to play represented the most true reproduction of an actual sound. That might be enough to influence your perception of the sound, even if what I was really using was just good equipment. Not the best, but just good stuff. Even if all I, all that stuff I told you wasn't true, your perception of sound might make it seem like you're listening to the most perfect reproduction of the original performance as could be attained. Or, if I did play a sound back on what really was an amazing sound system, but before I did it, I made a whole bunch of apologies for how the system I was using could not faithfully represent high tones or had a very weak bass output or something like that, you might perceive the playback as following these trends that I had mentioned, even if scientific recording instruments were to show that the playback didn't suffer from those problems at all. All that being said, the psychological aspect of how we perceive sound does have limitations. No amount of snake oil salesmanship is going to convince you that a truly subpar stereo system is capable of reproducing the glory of the Philharmonic Orchestra, for example. But because there is this subjective element in how we perceive sound, there's the opportunity to exploit that element and make a lot of money in the process. I've talked before about how certain manufacturers have used this to market high-end audio equipment, And some of that has little to no scientific evidence to back up the claims that they make about those gadgets. And yet they're able to set exorbitant prices for components that audiophiles will covet because they're always in a quest to get that perfect representation of a sound. Uh, So this stuff does happen. I also covered this when I talked about MP3 compression, because if you remember, in MP3s, Part of the compression strategy is to take all the different parts of a sound that we humans typically don't notice, and you just cut them. You get rid of them, because that way you cut down on the size of the sound file. The strategy is, if you can't perceive it, then we don't need it in the information. We can just cut it. But audiophiles say, no, if you do that, it affects the stuff that we can hear, and thus you are changing the nature of the audio recording, Just because you couldn't hear the thing doesn't mean the thing wasn't doing something else. I think the jury is still out on that in a large part. I mean, there are some legitimate arguments to make about harmonics and things that do come into play, but I'm not sure it gets to the level of subtlety that a lot of audiophiles argue. At least I don't see the scientific evidence supporting it. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means I haven't seen the evidence supporting it. Anyway... As soon as we come back, I'm going to go into talking about amplification and why that's important. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Alright, now back when I was talking about the development of the loudspeaker, I mentioned that Rice and Kellogg observed there needed to be advancements in amplification, and by that they meant there needed to be a way to boost the electrical signal from the, res- the transmitter, the microphone, in order to give a speaker enough oomph to vibrate at a force strong enough to play back the sounds at a suitable volume. Without amplifiers, the signal strength might only allow a speaker to play back a sound at a low volume, or if the signal is very weak, it might not even move the speaker significantly enough at all to create any real sound. The reason the signal tends to be weak goes back to the limitations we face when we record sound in the first place. So using the microphone effect... We transform sound into electrical signals by making the microphone's diaphragm vibrate, mimicking the way our eardrums work, right? So it's like we're speaking into someone's ear when we talk into a microphone. Uh, Then we transform sound into electrical signals by making that microphone uh, diaphragm vibrate, and those small vibrations introduce fluctuations into an electrical signal in some way. But for sound to affect the diaphragm at all, the diaphragm has to be very lightweight, very sensitive, and it has to make very small movements. Otherwise, we'd have to make sound at enormous amplitudes or volume in order to generate the force necessary to vibrate the diaphragm. So it has to be very lightweight, very, very sensitive, and it's moving in a very small distance. So it can only make tiny changes in electrical current or generate a very tiny electrical current. Now, that's good enough for the purposes of recording the sound. You can do that, you can use that to record sound, it's fine because it can record at those tiny details, but if you want to play the sound back on a speaker, you have to boost that signal in order to drive the speakers, to physically move them. You want to make the signal more powerful, but you also want to keep all the fluctuations of the signal, all the dynamics of the signal. So that way you can represent when a song gets louder or more quiet, or when one element is taking over over another element. All of these things are very subtle. And you have to preserve that. So you want the signal not just to be boosted, but for all the different fluctuations of that signal to be represented in that boost. You want it all to be at the same relative strength as they were in the weaker signal. Now an amplifier does this through the use of two separate circuits. The first circuit is the input circuit. That's the weaker of the two signals. That's the one that's coming from the microphone. The second circuit is your output circuit, which sends a stronger signal out to the speakers. And it draws upon the amplifier's power supply to boost the signal. So you have an amplifier. It has its own power supply. It's generating the signal that's going through this output circuit. The power going through the output circuit is a direct current. So it's flowing in a set direction. It does not change. Uh, if you have an amplifier and you've hooked it directly up to your house's alternating current, there's a power supply element inside the amplifier that converts it from alternating current to direct current. Now, think of the output circuit as always pushing a strong signal out toward the speakers. It's just most of the time the signal is not carrying any information, but when the amplifier is on, that's what it's doing. It's pushing the strong signal out to the speakers. The input circuit's job, is to use the original weak electrical signal as a way to vary the resistance in the output circuit. So the variable resistance recreates the voltage fluctuations in the original signal. So what you're doing is you've got this strong signal going out. You use the weak signal to introduce the same fluctuations into the strong signal, and then the strong signal will reflect the weaker one. It'll be exactly the same, except stronger. In the good old days, amplifiers relied upon vacuum tubes as an integral component. And in fact, some amplifiers still do, particularly for stuff like professional electric guitar amplifiers. There are professional musicians who swear by vacuum tube amplifiers and they will not use anything else. Vacuum tubes are a pretty interesting technology and they date back to the early 20th century. So let's talk about how they work for just a second. First, they look a lot like light bulbs. And in fact, they operate very similar to light bulbs. They are glass tubes. Inside this glass tube is a filament. Uh, Like a light bulb, the filament inside uses electrical resistance to heat up. The filament either contains or is somehow wrapped around a material like tungsten, which, when it's heated to very high temperatures, starts to boil off electrons. Uh, That would be the cathode of the vacuum tube. It's the source of electrons. The electrons accept... Only so much energy. And then after that, they effectively jump ship. They're ready to burst off of the atoms that they were previously connected to. Now, also inside the vacuum tube is a plate that has a relative positive charge to it compared to the cathode. That's called the anode. The electrons are negatively charged, and so they're attracted to the positively charged anode, and the negative uh, charged electrons flow toward the positively charged anode. Now, if this were all there were to a vacuum tube, it would just be a diode. That means it would be an element in a circuit that would allow electricity to pass one way from cathode to anode, but not back the other way. However, there's a third element, and that's what creates the amplification effect. That element is a grid of spiral wires or a mesh material that acts as a sort of control grid or cage between the cathode and the anode. So it It essentially surrounds the cathode. Now, if you apply a voltage to this control grid that is lower than the cathode itself, it reduces the amount of current passing from cathode to anode. By placing a large positive voltage on the plate and then feeding a signal to the control grid, you can affect the voltage across the load on the circuit. So you make tiny changes in the control grid's voltage, and you get a much larger change across the load of the circuit, amplifying the signal. So again, you you put a large positive voltage on this plate, you feed the input signal into the uh, the control grid, and then you amplify that signal across the entire load. And that load would typically involve speakers or an amplifier. These days, most amplifiers do not use vacuum tubes. Instead, we use solid-state transistors. To describe how those transistors work gets a little complicated, but in general, a basic transistor has three components. You've got an emitter, a base, and a collector. The emitter and the collector are both N-type uh, semiconductors, meaning that they have a more electrons. Uh, they have a surplus of electrons there. You can think of it almost like a negative charge. The base is a P-type semiconductor. It's sandwiched between the emitter and the collector. It has what would we would call a positive charge or holes for electrons. Feeding the input current between the emitter and the base creates a much larger output current between the emitter and the collector, thus amplifying the signal. Now, the output signal should ideally match the input signal exactly, except, again, everything is just bigger, as an amplified, and that signal would be strong enough to do the work of moving those speaker diaphragms and generating the sounds we enjoy. Well, I hope you enjoyed how speakers and amplifiers work. Like I said, next week we're going to have the story of Sansui and its rise and fall, and what the company did and uh, the the various products that it produced and why they were important, why certain audiophiles to this day will seek out Sansui uh, components, like receivers in particular. There are certain receivers that are highly prized among audiophiles, even though, spoiler alert, this company doesn't exist anymore. So that'll be next week's episode, but I'm glad that I did this so that way... You know, I'm not just repeating something I've already done in the past. I know that can be very frustrating. And due to my terrible memory, it happens pretty frequently without me even being aware of it. So hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have suggestions for future topics, because Sansui is actually going to be, that's a listener request. I'll talk about that more next week. So if you have a request, like if there's a specific topic in tech you want me to talk about, maybe it's a particular company a trend in technology, a particular type of tech, and you want to know more about it, send me a message. Uh, I love getting those. It always gives me a great starting point to jump into some research. And the best way to do that is to send it over on Twitter. The handle for the show is tech stuff hSw. And I'll talk to you again really soon.